Oh, Yart. Oh, Long Johnson. What's the crack with you? I am still. Oh, I've got my microphone backwards, let's. There you go. My microphone was backwards. And you know why my microphone was backwards? Because I'm still in my temporary studio. And my microphone is covered with a stupid glove. And I couldn't see what was the front and what was the back. Um, however, I have adjusted my studio slightly in that I'm now lying down on a couch while I speak into the microphone. Which will allow for a more measured and relaxed pacing of my tone. Which I needed because... I don't know, I got a bang of anxiety of last week's podcast. A little bit. Not anxiety. But I felt my rhythm was frantic because of how I was sitting. I got some lovely feedback off you. You really enjoyed the um, the story about being on the plane with Jedward. And one person on Twitter even made a William Hogarth inspired illustration of us on the plane with Jedward. And that made me chortle. Hold on a second now. I'm gonna I'm gonna pull the the foreskin of this glove up over the microphone, and you might hear the velcro. There you go. Now Th- that's much better. That is much better. The glove's foreskin was getting in the way of the sound. I'm very pleased with that sound now. Um. So this week's podcast is going to be a live podcast. And, I don't know, I, like I've explained it before, sometimes I feel a little bit of guilt putting out a live podcast in case it interferes with your podcast hug. But I do so assure you that the live podcast that I'm going to put out today, it's one of the best ones I've ever done. It was really, really fucking interesting. I loved it. And I loved doing this live podcast so much that I was a little bit pissed off I wasn't in the audience. Because I was really, really interested in my guest and what they had to say. So we're going to get on to that in a while. But what I want to do now is... As you know, I've been looking for a sponsor for this podcast. Now, the real sponsor of this podcast is is basically ye, the listeners. Because, as you know, I have a Patreon page. Um, and a lot of ye fucking go on to Patreon every month and you give me the price of a pint to sponsor this podcast and I love that thank you so much to everybody and if you would like to um, sponsor this podcast via Patreon just go to patreon.com forward slash the blind boy podcast and if you're feeling generous give me the price of a pint once a month please if you're feeling that way inclined um because it's loads of work. It's like five hours of fucking podcast a month, which I love doing it. But I also like getting a couple of quid for it, if possible. And if you don't want to give any money, that's grand. You can continue listening to free for free. I listen to loads of podcasts for free. I'm appealing to your soundness. This is egalitarian. I managed to get uh, for the next one or two podcasts or three a little sponsor. Um, and it's an Irish company that has come forward to sponsor the, the question segment of this podcast 
and the company's name is Wolfgang Digital and they're an independent Irish digital marketing agency and I haven't a fucking clue what that means I don't know what that means I don't know what digital marketing agencies do something with computers probably but fair play to Wolfgang what I do know is that they have an office and everyone in the office is a big fan of the podcast and they were listening every week and enjoying it and they were like let's sponsor Blind Boy for a couple of episodes and fair play to them because they're a small fucking company so they came up with a you know a small few quid and said let's sponsor them for a couple of episodes so fair play to Wolfgang Digital um, so what they're going to do is Wolfgang have gone to the office and they're going to ask me a question a sponsored question and I'm going to answer it but also they're launching a video blog called Wolfgang Bites. So if you're interested in it, search for Wolfgang Bites on YouTube. And how this is going to work is they're going to ask me a question. Then I'm going to answer the question. And they then, I think, are going to make a video on Wolfgang Bites that relates to the question that I asked. So, fairly creative. Fair play to them. I've never heard of a sponsored um, question segment before. So, the, the question they're asking this week... In the next few months, Facebook will reach 2.2 billion users and surpass Christianity, the largest community of people in the history of humanity. When this happens, will Mark Zuckerberg be more influential than Jesus? Depends what you mean by influential. Do you know what? Oh, God. That is a toughie. Um, the message of Christ, obviously... Did Christ fucking say anything? No. Do you know what I mean? Like, there's nothing really that Christ said that's new. It's it's all a bunch of shit. I mean, Ten Commandments now, and they're 4,000 years old. That's some raw shit. You know, Ten Commandments are pretty fucking... That's some new shit. But Christ's message was generally, here, be sound, will ye? Um, and then the martyrdom thing, but, you know, Christ had been done before, he was just really good at it and had a class beard. Facebook's message, or rather not so much Facebook's message, because Facebook doesn't have a, a message, what Facebook has is, it's a way of operating. On a previous podcast I spoke about Carl Rogers' theory of the real and the ideal self. And what Facebook has done, it's created a mechanism for human beings to create highly curated digital avatars of our ideal self. Actually, do you know what? Fucking religion did that too, didn't it? A little bit. Actually, yeah. Not necessarily Christ. But if you look at, um, we'll say, the Catholic Church in Ireland, if if it allowed people to have this ideal self facade of Christian perfection, do you know? That was a big thing in Ireland. 
you know, go to Mass every Sunday. Let everybody in the community see you at Mass with your perfect family and you're in your best Sunday clothes with your rosary beads and going to confession and obeying very closely the sanctimonious rules of Catholicism and wear that ideal face publicly in church and then go home and I don't know fucking drink or cheat on your wife or do a bunch of unchristian shit box your son steal from people yeah Christianity essentially allowed people to have this ideal self and that's what Facebook does as well it's it's except Facebook's avatar is digital you have your digital avatar of the perfect version of you and Christianity did the same thing except not digitally in in a space called church on Sundays so there is a similarity um so I won't say Facebook is more influential than Jesus because he's too iconic but probably more influential than Christianity right now I mean now Christianity's got a couple of thousand years on like has Facebook started any wars yet Christianity has started quite a few wars I mean the Arab Spring Facebook was responsible for that fucking hell that is a good question that's got my mind kind of spiralling yes the, the Arab Spring Facebook and Whatsapp who were owned by the same company Facebook were quite instrumental in how the Arab Spring and the Arab Revolution and the current refugee crisis came out of the Arab Spring and the Syrian Civil War so Facebook and Christianity are kind of yeah they're close competitors but it, to say that Facebook is bigger than Jesus that's just too hot takey for me he's too iconic I mean go anywhere in the world with a photograph of Christ and they're going to have an idea of who he is or a crucifix can you say the same thing for the Facebook logo has Facebook done the missions down in Africa I don't think it has yet because there's too many communities without internet but Christianity has done that mission it remains to be seen and because of the Cambridge Analytica business recently is Mark Zuckerberg going to be crucified so thank you to Wolfgang Digital for that question and for giving a little bit of sponsorship this week so now I'm going to I'll take a question from a human being Jimmy Meehan asks Blind Boy what do you think of the recent surge of internet influencers tweeting about the upcoming referendum I've seen you tweet on the matter and you were quite abruptly shot down so my question is what's the difference between an influencer voicing their opinion versus a campaigner or politician voicing their opinion Um. well first of all uh, a politician Politicians are elected representatives, so politicians don't really get to have opinions as such because they must represent the voices of their constituents. That's the shitty thing about 
politicians is like once someone gets elected their tongue is essentially tied because they represent their constituents um there's a lot of influencers not fucking saying shit about the repeal the eight referendum as well it, it it's it kind of gets my goat a bit one of the reasons that we'll say this podcast has difficulty finding sponsors right like I should be awash with sponsorship but I'm not like one of the reasons is because I have political opinions and when you express political opinions or talk about something like mental health advertisers just freak the fuck out they don't want that they want vanilla um influencers they want influencers who influencers just who just talk about makeup or just talk about consumer things and don't have like fucking boy bands you know boy bands don't express opinions they're not the, the boy bands aren't allowed to have girlfriends they just they are what they are and they do what they do and that makes them safe it means they're not volatile um a sponsor would consider me to be volatile because they don't know what opinion I'm going to express or what I'm going to say and how that could end up with their brand in hot water. Do you know? So a lot of influencers say fuck all. And okay, on the one hand, they're trying to earn a living. But on the other hand, have a bit of courage, stand up for something, have a bit of backbone. At least come out and say you know what I'm really vacuous and I've no opinion on anything I don't give a shit about politics and I don't think it affects me at least come out and say that but that's not the case there's a lot of influencers keeping their mouth shut being clever and not kind of supporting or backing things even something like mental health do you know if if you are an influencer and you have a lot of young people uh, list, uh, listening to you then chances are a lot of them have mental health issues so I think you should consider it your duty and responsibility to educate yourself around it and do something to reach and help them because you could be saving a life and that's better than sponsorship sometimes isn't it huh so I think now I'm going to get on to the live podcast soon now. Um, before we get on to the live podcast, let's have a brief uh, pause for the simulated ocarina whistle. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Yeah. 
If you're a new listener, I'm not going to explain to you what the ocarina pause is. I'm going to just let you guess. So, <clears throat> the live podcast that I'm going to go to now, it was recorded a couple of weeks ago in the Sugar Club in Dublin. And it's with a historian called Finn Dwyer who presents the Irish History Podcast, which it's a fucking brilliant podcast. I love it. It's, <clears throat> I think it's the first podcast I ever listened to. I'm not actually a massive podcast fan. I don't listen to a lot of podcasts. But when I first gave it a lash, about 2013, I I was just like, what are these podcast things? What's the deal? Let's see what it's about. And I was conf- confronted with the... I still have a, t- <coughs> a tickly cough from two weeks ago. I apologise. <coughs> I was confronted with the sheer fucking choice of, fuck it, what am I going to listen to a podcast on? There's so many out there. So I just typed in to the podcast app, to the iTunes app in 2013, Irish History. And the Irish History podcast came up. And it was fairly early in the Irish History podcasts. Like Finn was only posting maybe once every three months. So I threw it on, and I was enamoured. I loved it. I loved hearing Finn talk about Irish history, and the, I could tell as well that he he, he kind of he writes his podcasts out first and reads what he writes, which is a huge amount of fucking work. You're talking twenty, thirty thousand words, and I loved it. I fucking loved his podcasts, but he was only putting them out, like I said, every couple of months. So I decided I'd reach out, like five years ago, I reached out to him and I said, look, I fucking love your podcast. Um, It was giving me the podcast hug at the time, but I didn't know what it was. I kept going back to it for a feeling of solace and calm. But I said to him, your audio fidelity is fucking terrible. I know a thing or two about audio. Do you want to send me your podcasts before they go out and I'll run them through some processors and stuff and make the quality better so Finn sent me on one or two fucking podcasts years ago and I fucked with the sound and I gave him advice on a mic or whatever and since then the Irish History Podcast has grown massively and he's got a Patreon page and he's doing fantastically audio fidelity has improved and he's putting content out regularly and it's an excellent podcast so I jumped at the chance to have him as a live guest And we spoke in depth about, mainly about the Irish famine um, and about Irish history. And it was a pleasure talking to someone as passionate and as knowledgeable as he is on the subject. And it was also a pleasure for me as a long-time listener of the Irish History Podcast to hear somebody who usually reads out scripted material, to hear him talk in a conversational passage conversational fasage fashion off the top of his head and to hear his opinions because he's a pure historian so <clears throat> his podcast doesn't have opinion it just has history so it was great to get uh, some political discussions and the audience fucking loved it you could have heard a pin drop all night 
it was I think the most captivated audience I've had so far for a live podcast so the interview is like I think it's about an hour and 10 minutes long and I'm already after ranting out of my hoop for 20 minutes here so this week's podcast is quite long and hopefully the live podcast does not interfere with your podcast hug it's really interesting give it a lash and I'm going to be back next week where I'm most likely doing a a live podcast from Spain and I'll keep you posted on that alright subscribe to the podcast leave a nice review leave a rating and enjoy this live interview with Finn DeWire about history which is class I love medieval history yeah as do I but it makes it kind of weird us like my experience is that most people don't like medieval history or there's a limit we say to the amount of people that like medieval history but uh, the famine people love the famine <laughs> for good or bad people love yeah. that famine because <laughs> um, it was something interesting you were saying earlier we were, we were talking about uh, Irish Americans and we'd say there's one thing already the, you know the Irish slaves myth I've spoken about that about uh, there were Irish people were sent to Barbados and the Caribbean to work as indentured servants, right? Labour was forced on them. But nowadays, American racists say, my grandparents were slaves too, get off your ass. Yeah, for sure. It's, it's they're using our history basically to be racist goals. But you said that you find it with the famine too, that it's like the Yanks, when you get males, they seem to want... Give us more hardship. Give us more hardship. For sure. Like, people want like this sense of, like, our history. It's like a, a misery competition where mm-hmm. our experience must be the worst. And it's like, lads, we have got a terrible history. We don't need someone else's. Like, you know, there's yeah. no need to go out and find an even worse one. But you get this in terms of the famine. The famine is so they can give out about the Jews. And the... It is, that, I think, brings us on to the most controversial subject around the famine, I guess, in, in what you call the famine. And if you yeah, don't... that's the thing. Like, I mean, I, I know for a fact now, as soon as I put this podcast out, 20 comments underneath, you mean the genocide. Do you know what I mean? Like, you, you can't use, like, that's something I want to talk about, you know? Yeah, for um, sure, for sure. And I'm sure many people have said to you, Finn, was it a fucking famine or a genocide? You cunt. Tell us what it is. Well, like, there's, there's probably even someone here tonight who, like, you know, the, the vein in their temple is pulsing now. But uh, I think to explain it, there's probably two different things to this, like, and maybe this will, like, help people a bit in terms of the first question is who's responsible? Yeah. And the second question then is what was it? So in terms Irish, of, we did it to ourselves. Yeah. We were lazy. It was our own fault. <laughs> and uh, to cut a long story short, who's responsible... It's the British government. They yeah. were the government in control today. And you get, like, revisionists who try and go, oh, well, it's a lot more complicated. At the end of the day, they're the one who set the policies. They're the ones who had control, who decided to change policies, which certainly, for example, in 1846, they adopted a policy that made the whole situation a lot worse. Mm-hmm. So if we want to... No, but h- here's the thing. Was the adoption of that policy... Were they trying to help and they fucked it up out of ignorance or was it straight up, we don't give a fuck? I think this is part of the reasons why what was going on at the time makes some people uncomfortable today because what the British government were doing is pursuing an ideology which was one around... This is the laissez-faire... It was liberalism. We have neoliberalism today. They were doing what 
lots of people Straight today. The, the economy the, is a wild animal. We must not yeah, interfere. And with it. that they, some of these people, genuinely thought that if you allowed the free market to operate, that would uh, help the Irish people, and uh, that private merchants would import loads of cheap food, and yeah. that would. Now that's a massive simplification, um, but it was motivated from this idea. Like I guess to explain it. Everyone talks about free trade or liberalism today. In the 1840s, this was this almost radical new idea that, like, was like people in England in particular were like zealots around this idea yeah. that it was going to be the panacea that would create the greatest empire in the world and that Britain would lead the world with this. So, in a lot of ways, when the famine started here, they saw this as an opportunity. It's like almost we can test out these Here's ideas. Here's our fucking test tube for. And that's where your racism comes in. Yeah. That's where, like, would they have done this? But that this is a system of fucking oppression right there, yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Or, like, would the, they have done it to the people of Sheffield if they had a famine? That's the thing. Like, I think it's fair or to say... Scottish famines. They, like, they certainly would not have done it in England. I think it's fair to say maybe in the highlands of Scotland they, there was a famine in the 1840s in the highlands of Scotland. It wasn't as severe for lots of reasons. But I think in terms of uh, what happened here, racism is at the core of it. We would have just had the fucking penal laws as well, like, you know? So, like, it was quite uh, clear. Yeah, there was a culture there that, like, saw so Irish people as second class. The view was class. probably dirty, rotten Catholics. They won't stop fucking each other. There's too many children. <laughs> but that was the vibe, like... Oh, for uh, sure. Like, lazy, rude people. Um, let's put a bit of manners into them. This might sort them out. This might civilise the Irish, almost. I mean, I mean yeah. Trevelyan... Trevelyan's quote is always the one that puts chills through me. And Trevelyan, he was... What was the role that he was given? He was, he was the head of famine relief, was that it? So, Charles Trevelyan is the top civil servant in the Treasury. Yeah. And he is a permanent official, so he basically has a huge amount of influence over how uh, famine relief and money in general is yeah. spent. But also, Trevelyan is a bit of a control freak in general, so he mm-hmm. tends to, during the famine, get as much control over the situation, even down to really minute stuff going on in, like, places out in the west of Ireland, he wants to control that, and he's getting these letters back and forth, and he kind of... Uh, and that's not very, you know, economically liberal. <laughs> he, he in, like, he's a real ideologue as well, though. Like, he, they, and they, what would have been his ideology? He, he was, uh, his quote was, the famine is an act of God, and it would be effective in reducing population. I, I, the, that, that underpins a lot of what they... they they think, like, uh, they're not... I think it's important to say they're not trying... They're not setting out to kill Irish people. Yeah. These people don't tend to care, though, one way or another, if yeah. the Irish population drops. Like, and you... There are, for example... Like, revisionists will point out a letter from Trevelyan where he's yeah. working, like, 15 hours a day and he's, like, writing about all these poor people dying in the west of Ireland. That's all well and good. And they show that to show, oh, he must have cared. Yeah, he must have yeah. cared. But like, well, then we look at what he did. Because that, that's the most important thing. Like, everyone, you know, it's, that's not really useful to say, oh, he, he, he had these, like, moments where he didn't like the fact that all these people were dying. It's more about what the policies that they implement. And pretty consistently, like, for example, maybe a good one is, <coughs> in 1847, they're kind of getting tired of it. And they just decide, they'll announce that the famine is over. And then the famine is over. And... Jesus Christ. Hundreds of It thousand. was obviously bringing a lot of international attention and getting quite embarrassing. That's um, something I'd like to know. Um, like, as Britain, as, like, that was the height of the fucking empire. Yeah. Like, were they not embarrassed? Um, I mean, were the, they're fr- not embarrassed were the French to... not looking on and going, ah, look at the Brits are doing. Like, the... like we say with fucking, when Roger Casement 
made, made a big uh, case out of the Belgians and Leopold and, what, and, and the, the, you know, the abuses yeah. that he was doing in Africa. And the Brits funded Casement in doing that so they could whip the Belgians and go, look at the Belgians being pricks in Africa. There's, I mean, what are, what there's are, not the same uh, uh, outcry, I don't think, in, 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 in say, it's parallel that. Yeah. Um, that's not to say, though, that there isn't an outcry. Um, there's an outcry from North America where there's huge amounts of Irish people already gone there. Yeah. And as they're there hearing... The incident with the... Didn't the Turks want to give us a lot of relief and the, embarrassed... Uh, What's her face? The Queen. Yeah. So the Turk, the Sultan of Turkey, originally wanted to, to send over ten thousand pounds worth. I think it was ten thousand pounds worth of food, and the British consulate in Constantinople contacted him and went, "Look, you're going to make us look bad." Yeah. Put it down that. So I think eventually, to fit in with the international protocol, they drop it to a thousand pounds. And relief. did they? Like kind of, I heard they snakily just fucked all this food up into Drogheda and a, sh- and a lot of ships. And for this reason today, uh, a Drahada local soccer team has got the cross and the, the crescent, the Islamic crescent. Is that it, yeah? yeah. Is, is that because of the Turks? It would be a great story, but no. Ah, <laughs> you don't know why, do you? You don't know why it is. Uh, it predates that way back into the... And what is the reason? I, you, I, they love I, kebabs back in the <laughs> <laughs> A lad went out on a crusade and came back with a kebab and it was... Uh, was it a crusader <laughs> thing? No, I, I, I don't know the full origins of it, but it dates, as far as I know, to um, the... It could be the visit of King John to Ireland. So, the visit of King John? Oh, yeah. of course. And John Richard, his brother, would have been crusading and all that carry on. Yeah, like, I, I don't know... I'm not gonna, I don't know the specific origins of it, but it weighs... See, that's the problem family. with a fucking historian. <laughs> like, I'm over here, hot-taking all over the place, making wild assumptions. Couldn't give a shit. And he's here being... I'm not saying that, I'm not saying that, I'm not saying that. <laughs> Fucking hell. If we turn off I, the mics, I'll say. <laughs> 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 Fucking King John did the mood landing. But, uh, and what you're, what you're doing at the moment, you're saying as well, is that you do a bit of um, fucking, what do you call it, walking tours of the famine around Dublin at the moment. Yeah, yeah. Which is interesting because I think of the famine as outside the pale. Yeah, like I think we all have this idea <coughs> like of uh, the famine affecting, like I suppose Skibbereen is the most famous place we all heard. Yeah, song. Cheer for, uh, the, <laughs> cheer for the dead of Skipper. Fame to claim. Look, you've made poor old Eamon unhappy. <laughs> um, but uh, the famine affected the entire country. I guess best way to explain it is if like the economy implodes, it's gonna, which is what happens during the famine. Yeah. If you cut off the food to treat four million people, a lot of other things are going to go wrong. For example, no one can pay rent. But it does affect Dublin. It affects Dublin for lots of reasons. Um, for example, uh, you get loads of rural migrants flocking into the city. They're trying to come to Dublin for work. They're trying to maybe emigrate. But you get this... The population of Dublin actually increases during the famine. But that... Was in, that because of people trying to get... Yeah, it's, it, that doesn't mean that Dublin was having a whale of a time during the famine and everyone was yeah. just getting on. Um, there's there like, a lot of workhouses and things like that. So, yeah, there's a lot of... To be honest, the, the history of the famine in Dublin, there's a lot of dark stories. So, for example... One incident or one example I can give you, there's a hospital in Dublin, it's gone now, it used to be called the Lock Hospital down there behind uh, Trinity College, and that was where uh, women with venereal diseases were treated. Mm-hmm. And in the, 19, in the 1840s, basically, Dublin prostitutes would go there to get mm-hmm. treated for venereal disease. So during the famine, the 
a number of uh, uh, people going into the lock hospital increases by 25 percent mm-hmm. and most of that are there's a huge increase as well of rural women so you have the going and of course to the as well because of like if, um, uh, sailors and things coming in like yeah. syphilis came over from the new world didn't yes it? yeah that like was you, a new like, disease for us like well say by the famine it's, it's pretty well established but it's a pretty uh what horrific. were the main stds at the time Syphilis is the one that they all talk about. Yeah. Because it does... Syphilis... It's a legitimate question. <laughs> and that's the face falling off one. Yeah, there's actually... I did this project in Kilkenny. It is! There's a... I did this project in Kilkenny Workhouse there uh, about a... Uh, there's a... I was involved in making an audio-visual guide for the workhouse so you can go around... Uh, An audio-visual guide to medieval syphilis. <laughs> go on, but sorry. There's this... <laughs> But there was a guy in that workhouse who died, and uh, all this part of his skull had actually been corroded by syphilis. Oh my so God. by the end of it, like he was, he died during the famine. So Did, like the bone, like yeah, yeah, yeah. Jesus so he, he would have been uh, hallucinating by the end of it, and he was living in a workhouse uh, during the famine where there's a huge number of people dying sick. So you can just imagine the hallucinations that guy was having. Like it was like life was bad enough if you could see it, but when you're seeing and it, uh, could they effectively treat it back then? No. Nah, what they used to do is give people mercury. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's great. <laughs> and one of the uh, one of the side effects of uh, one of the side effects of syphilis is um, that uh, you get hallucinations. Yeah. Um, and the uh, the but the problem is that mercury also does that, so they couldn't tell whether it makes it better or worse. It's not known. Like obviously, they don't do it today. They can treat syphilis. Um, that's not from personal experience. <laughs> 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 um, but uh, uh, they can treat syphilis very effectively today. But in the 19th century, they didn't really know what they were doing. They didn't know, I didn't know what it was. I, they, like, they, they, like mercury could, uh, in, in some ways... How were they administering the mercury? Was it injections um, or...? No, you could take tablets, or and sometimes they'd actually put it directly onto the wound. And it would actually make the wound recede. But obviously, if you're taking a hell of a lot... They used to use a thing called a mercury sock, where they dip it in mercury and put it up over your arm and Jesus let the mercury Christ. soak in. But, uh, Fucking hell. Yeah. So, grim. That, but anyway, that that's just one grim, chapter yeah. of the yeah. of the uh, of the uh, famine in How Dublin. How would the health start? Like, if, if the government were that laissez-faire, like, who was running the hospitals? Who was paying for those hospitals? Like, who who gave enough of a shit about uh, incredibly poor uh, prostitutes to, to give her treatment? So the the general idea is that everything should be done by charity. Is that like, that's okay. it? If you want to help someone, does a does a because didn't did, did the Magdalene laundries come out of that? The, yeah, I know the good shepherds. Well, they, they all existed. There was Magdalene Laundries existing, existed in Dublin way back in... I think the first was set up in the late... What, what I heard century. was... Cause what I heard is Magdalene Laundries, when they started, were actually a good thing because the lives of women who had to go into... I'm going to say sex work because I don't like saying prostitution. Yeah. The women who went into sex work at the time, they, 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 used, to hang, they used to live in hedges around garrisons. Yeah, soldiers, yeah, yeah. And... They had no life whatsoever, living in a hedge, making their money, servicing soldiers, and the Good Shepherd was set up, the Magdalene Laundry, essentially, to give these women homes because they were dying and needed them. And then, of course, it just turned into what we know as Magdalene Laundries, which were not crack. Yeah, I think... <laughs> I think that we can trace back, though, like, uh, it's, what, it's one of the things that I, I address or stop on, on, on the tour is, is this, like, so there's a... Um, up in Stony Batter, there's a, a place, uh, Stanhope Street, and there was a, a laundry, or well, what was effectively a, a laundry um, there. Now, it wasn't 
technically called it laundry, but it effectively was. But the women going into these during the famine, and like the, the official, it was a house of refuge, and its official kind of reason for being was to uh, provide, uh, or to rescue women from famine and infamy, infamy being... Um, That's what they call it, infamy. Infamy, yeah. But I think that lays out how these women were treated. So in, the, in that institution, if you went in there, you could go in there and say during the famine, you can get food... So but, you're uh, better off than living in a fucking hedge. You are, but there's a huge amount of stigmatism that goes with that. So, for okay, example, yeah. those women were forced to cut off all contact to their yeah. previous lives. They had to and be like nuns and such, almost monastic. You know, like, and they're forced to work. It's not like the idea today of like uh, when we talk about famine relief, it's, it, we're talking light years. Even to say, for example, if you want to talk about workhouses, yeah. they're the same thing set up to ostensibly help people, but it's all about shame and, and shame in the poor. Like, and which what is, type of work was done in a workhouse? Could be lots of different things. To be honest, during the famine, a lot of that just collapses because they're overwhelmed. So, for example, the North Dublin Workhouse uh, is a the North Dublin Workhouse is one of them, and that it, the official capacity of that was two thousand, but by the end of eighteen forty seven, there was four thousand people Jeez in it. Christ. Now it had been slightly expanded, but it gives you a sense of like. But what were they doing? Hammering nails, fucking. About what what they they used to the idea was that they would do things like break rope, things like that. Um, okay. but. Um, during the famine, pretty much all the internal functioning of these places, in a lot of cases, just collapsed. And it was just the, a place full of people getting soup. Pretty much, like there's a, there's a, yeah, it's a, it's they're horrific places because they are actually trying to help people. A lot of them, particularly in the east of the country, are relatively well run. Out in the west, there's lots of examples of landlords actually uh, cutting back the budgets of workhouses. But that's, I suppose that's a different story. But um, in they're, they're trying to help people, but you get disease. So, for example, in the north, of course, yeah, Jesus, yeah. like once disease breaks out in the workhouse, you've got four thousand people in a place, maybe the size of a whatever a hospital today. The um, and they're all sleeping in dorms. Uh, by May eighteen forty seven, there's forty people dying every week in oh, the North Dublin workhouse, and then those people are just buried in a mass grave. Yeah, like um, it's a. Tell us the story about the the soup competition. <laughs> the uh, oh, what was it, man? You mentioned it before. Uh, some. F- Oh, the French a, a chef? celebrity chef at the yeah, time yeah. trying to make the best soup for the family. <laughs> the, uh, I'm serious. Uh, he, yeah, it's, it's true. It's, it's, uh, <coughs> by 1847, they'd made an absolute balls of handling the famine. Um, <coughs> that's a technical term that we use to describe. Um, in 18, so basically they were spending uh, about half a million pounds a month uh, on these public work schemes. Mm-hmm. So the idea was... These are the famine roads. Yeah, so what they want is they want the free market to function. Yeah. The problem is that the people they want to buy the food have no money. Yeah. So what they do is, well, what you want to do is set up all these pointless work schemes, make them work really hard even though they're starving. For a bit of money. And we'll actually pay them not enough money to buy food so they'll actually starve to death anyway. Uh, so hell. by February 1847, the, uh, there's the government officials in Ireland are writing to London going, look, this is actually making the whole situation worse. So they go, okay, look, we're going to start out something different. So they launched this public, or they launched this big, massive uh, system of soup kitchens all across the country. And it's actually very impressive the way they roll this out. People often argue that the British government couldn't have, uh, couldn't have uh, dealt with the famine. But actually, when they opened up the soup kitchens, they opened them up really rapidly. But anyway, they, they have this big, I suppose what you call today, media launch. And they yeah. get in this guy, Alexis Sawyer, a real the guy actually was like the Jamie Oliver of his day he'd written all these uh, cookbooks like yeah. for the working classes and this kind of thing real like well known guy and he kind of gets interested in this so he comes over to Ireland 
and uh, he designs this model soup kitchen where he can feed a thousand people uh, an hour and he designs these uh, uh, soups now the soups are just like basically water with a few bits and pieces floating around yeah. in them but anyway besides but they they have this great launch and they have it down just in front of Collins's barracks there on the Croppies Acre and uh, they like you, you couldn't make this stuff up what they do is they get the good the great and the good of uh, Dublin down, so they get the chief, uh, the commander in chief of the British Army, Edward Blackney. Jesus Christ. They get Lord Bespera, the, the Lord Lieutenant, and they're all down there and they have this kind of soiree. And then they have the soup kitchen opened up, and before anyone has anything, the elite of society go down and kind of look around test and the soup test before. it out. Then they get a hundred example paupers from the Mendicity Institute and bring them down and let the rich then watch these people. Uh, oh eat. my God. And then at six o'clock in the evening, there's all these other people starving to death surrounding it and eventually they're let in and even though the soup kitchens actually were quite effective uh, they, this obviously was roundly condemned now when I say the soup kitchens were effective they were effective for six months until they shut them down in September 1847 and why were uh, they shut down? Uh, they're shut down for lots of reasons uh, but the main one is the British government had this idea that Irish property should pay for Irish poverty so Irish property is uh, landlords so what they're going to do is tax the landlords to pay for the Irish poor Problem is, there's not enough money in the country to even pay for it. Yeah. Most landlords just refuse to pay it. Or, well, not most. A lot of them kind of refuse. A lot of them are living in England. Um, so that's where the workhouses... The, the, the workhouses come under huge pressure then. So they're supposed to be funded by these local taxes. But out in the west of Ireland, there's just not enough money in those areas anymore. If you've got, like, 50 60% of the population who need relief, because yeah. I think it, it's hard to envisage, but, like, in 1845... Three to four million people lived on a diet almost exclusively of potatoes. Mm-hmm. Like that's literally you're eating very little else, and it's really nutritious actually. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah my buddy was saying that like potato is mm. one of the st- one foods where it's like yeah. you can just eat that and be grand. Yeah. <laughs> no, it does. Like it, 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 it hits all the. You won't be deficient in anything, you know. Irish people are actually marginally taller than. Uh, Anyone else in Europe at the time? Well, no. Because of the potato consumption. That's what the, like. Well, see, when it was plentiful, when it was but when it was plentiful, we were actually doing okay nutritionally, weren't we? Yeah, it comes back to I guess what we talked today about food, food sovereignty and things like that. And yeah. You can't you can't have a functioning society dependent on one crop because like if that no. fails, well, we all course, know what yeah. happens when that fails, and it's not very good. Um, but uh, the, the amount of potatoes they used to eat was phenomenal. They used to eat like. Uh, adult male labourer would eat about 13 pounds of potatoes a day. That's about What's that in kgs? I don't know. Uh, it's about 50 or 60 spuds anyway. Jesus Christ. Um, and Fucking you, hell. you might have a bit of buttermilk in with that. If you live at the coast, you might have a bit of fish. But uh, yeah, it's pretty much potatoes. That's something I'd like to know. Okay, Now, I know that um, like fishing and hunting was pretty much outlawed. And... What happened if you were on the coast, like the odd periwinkle or an old mussel or something? Like, I mean, <laughs> no, but seriously. Like, no, 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 no. Like, and actually, fishing and <coughs> wasn't actually illegal. You could do it. And the, there is actually loads of communities who, say, in 1845, are well positioned to ride out the famine because they can fish, and fishers obviously can survive. So that on fish. did exist for the, the problem, people who were in the right location. Well, the problem is, though, is that in 1845, in the, the first year, the, the famine isn't actually. That bad. Now, when I say that bad, it means you're not you're going to starve, but probably not starve to death. Um, and what a lot of people are doing is they're planning for the next year. So what they start doing is pawning anything they have. Like yeah. so, pawn shops are making an absolute killing. 
pardon the pun, and it's um, the the uh, they. But the problem is, in 1846, the um, crop fails even worse. So these people who were dependent on getting all this equipment back, so they pawned all their boats, their nets, all this kind of stuff, and they're planning that in the after the harvest of 1846, they'll be able to get all this stuff back. But unfortunately. Um, for them, what happens is the crop failure in 1846 is even worse, so they don't have the money now to go back in and pawn, or get back their stuff from pawn shops. And they're absolutely... Uh, they're, there's a, a very famous account of an English Quaker, James Hackchuk, in the Ackle, he visited Ackle Island in 1847, yeah. and he talks about standing on the cliffs and seeing these huge shoals of fish, mm-hmm. and the people on Ackle are looking out at these huge shoals of fish. But they're not able to, uh, like, it's this horrific situation. There's plenty of food and they just can't go out to catch it. Fucking hell. So, like, yeah. It's, uh, so, th- w- one of the answers to that is why couldn't the Irish fish? Because they were too poor yeah. to even go out and get the. It's, uh, like, they, like it, it, there's kind of this idea that the, they were the too poor. The more stupid you describe it, it as well, because we, we got out with this, started with the question of genocide or famine, right? Yeah. And the more and more you talk about, we'll say, the things that the Brits did, they were so ridiculous that it's like what they were doing it was the test tube for sure yeah. like I mean these these fucking pilot schemes and we don't know whether it will work or not but it doesn't matter sure give it a crack and we'll find out isn't this the, isn't now the, the opportunity yeah I think I think though what's important to remember is we kind of think of obviously in Ireland there was never a famine as bad as that again after it but what I'm describing here is actually just a famine and these happen like, Obviously, yeah, what about the earlier ones, like the one that Jonathan Swift wrote a uh, modest proposal about, which was the 1740s. Like there was, there was a famine in 1740. It's known in Irish history as the year of slaughter. Yeah, and it was actually worse in terms of uh, about a third of the population probably died in 1740. Shit, 41. And what, what started that one? Um, that was poor weather. That uh, was it. The, was it spuds? Yeah, or, yeah. yeah. Ma- well, not not entirely. That there was also the failure of other crops, but that wasn't in many ways as severe because. It happens, the Great Famine lasts about five years, and you could argue probably even ten, you know, emigration lasts way into the 1850s. Evictions are, are huge up until 1854. So it's a very long time this crisis lasts in Irish society. But I guess what I'm saying is, what happened in Ireland in the 1840s isn't a unique event. This happens across the world, and even today. Obviously, there's local factors about how these play out, but that's why I think... But when we why, talk do about, why is the Great Famine, the Great Irish Famine, the one... That we hit, that like the world knows about. I think there's two reasons. One is it actually is one of the worst famines in modern world history yeah. in terms of proportionality. Give us a runner up. Uh, but <laughs> Mao Stalin, they did. Uh, well, of the, course, yeah, yeah. But um, I mean, I'm one around at the time. Uh, there's famines in India in the late 1870s, which is a, a very close um, model on what happens here. Well, and the, the Brits, Brits would have been regulating that is, as well. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. And, it, and literally they don't learn anything from... Well, they do learn, actually, probably, and they, they don't have a problem because Indians probably fall even less lower on the uh, racial hierarchy, in their view, and it's obviously, whatever, 10,000 miles away. Yeah. Um, and then there's another terrible famine at the turn of the 20th century as well. Like. Mm-hmm. So, But these, the, the, what I'm saying here, I think, is that a famine is a terrible thing. We don't have to call it a genocide. It doesn't mean the Brit- British government aren't responsible. Um, but if we were but to say... again, it's, it's ge- the exact same thing as the fucking... The slaves, the Irish slaves. It's like, we don't have to... They're not yeah. technically slaves. They're indentured servants. It was terrible. They had fucking awful lives. They were sent away against their will. They were forced to work. But however, 
they, at least they were considered human beings and their children weren't property. That's the thing, isn't That's it? It's the like key. You, you, the next generation, your if, family yeah, can go on. Yeah, if you were African, it's like, number one, you're not considered human. Number two, your kids are slaves, their kids are slaves. Yeah. There's nothing you can do. That, that is a system you're born into. Yeah. The Irish person had a, a life as horrible as them, but they, they were out of it in 10 years. Yeah. And a lot and of them I, became I, slave masters themselves, you know? Exactly, yeah. Like, I, I don't think there's... It's the same thing, like, terminology is very important. Yeah. And it doesn't... If you want to talk about the personal experience, like, saying the personal experience of, a, of a, an indentured slave, or an indentured servant, <laughs> it is shocking, but we, history is not just about one person's life, because we can never tell anything if we just talk about every individual's lives. We have to look at the overall experience, yeah, and the yeah, overall and experience is that after a certain amount of time, you are free. Yeah, and it's, it's one of the things that annoys me about, we'll say, the people who want to be perpetrating this slave thing because, like, black people in America aren't, don't have a problem with slavery because it's something that happened to their great-great-grandfather. They have a problem with it because they still suffer at a system For sure, yeah. right now that they yeah. can trace back to it, whereas the Irish are all over the fucking White House, so clearly we didn't. Yeah, and Do you know what I mean? It also didn't happen. The Irish didn't just get to the White House last the last decade or the decade before that. It's we have a been gradual in, thing. Yeah, we but we have also been there a hundred years in and around. Exactly. Them. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cannibalism in the famine. <laughs> this is a. I actually I, I used to make a podcast on the Middle Ages and I came across lots of uh, aspect, or records of cannibalism in famines then. And actually, cannibalism is a thing that just happens in famines, but. Traditionally, at least in Ireland, no one wanted to talk about this because we of were course. kind of this noble people who uh, had this terrible wrong done to us. Yeah. And we just kind of lay down and died and everything we did was... And I think what's really important about when we bring up things like we were talking about the Lock Hospital earlier on and we talk about cannibalism now is that this is part of our history and it's, it's a very important thing to understand that these things happen. But there's a couple of recorded cases of cannibalism um, one of them was uh, happened. Well, there's three recorded cases around Clifton in Galway, and um, one of them in particular, a very well documented case at the time, there was a man called Patrick Diamond. Actually, I was able to trace Patrick Diamond. He only died in 1894, but Patrick Diamond lived beside the seashore near Omi Island, and uh, a human body washed up on the shore. And uh, Patrick Diamond was hungry and he went to work on the body and his neighbours came down when he had removed the organs and put them into a bowl and he was going to eat them and they stopped them. Um, but this eventually, a, rec- a director in uh, Ballin and Slow heard about this and he wrote the newspapers and publicised it and the British government heard about it. And the British government, the Prime Minister of the day was a man called Lord John Russell. And Lord John Russell couldn't deny this because this Protestant director was a very, very respectable man. So he said that this man, Patrick Diamond, just had a voracious appetite, and that's why he did this. (laughs) And uh, the Times newspaper in England used to refer to him as the fat man, or a fat man. Um, But what happened there, there was a kind of a series of uh, articles that appeared in newspapers in the following um, kind of months after this came out, and a very sad letter came from a, a curate in Spittle, and that curate wrote about how he said that this is a tale all too familiar to him, mm-hmm. that he had seen this. And there's another case of a family who... And were they eating dead people? Yeah, or, it tended yeah, to okay. be. Like, there's no evidence of people murdering. Yeah. Um, there, there's circumstantial... In, obviously, cannibalism is something that 
brings with it terrible guilt. Like starvation yeah. makes people insane. And I don't think in any way that we should be kind of like, that's what I'm saying, you know, I'm saying this is part of I don't history. think anyone in the room is judging a person from the <laughs> <laughs> But <laughs> it's, uh, but I guess that's what I'm saying is that this is part of our history and it's not something that we should shy away from. Not at all. You know, that's the uh, thing. There should be no shame about fucking history. It, if bad shit happens, you, you elevate it so you learn yeah, from it. And There's not much to be learned. <laughs> Don't eat, lads. <laughs> but like, There's a very famous article actually written by a, a, one of the leading historians on the famine called uh, Eating People is Wrong that addresses <laughs> this. <yeah. laughs> um, you said something backstage which I quite enjoyed. You were talking about when the Irish went to America and the discrimination that they faced and how you see so many parallels in that with, we'd say, modern attitudes towards uh, Islamic refugees today. Oh, for sure. It's, you can literally take the racist attitudes that, and like Irish people faced appalling racism when they went to the US. They were considered, like, I, I guess part of it comes from, if you think about it, a lot of these people have sold everything they have here to get on these ships. Mm-hmm. They go over, their, their ships, disease can break out. They've been living on these tiny ships for weeks on end. So they're smelly, they're dirty, they're often diseased, they're desperate. So, you know, they, they, in many of the way, the, the ideas that you hear about refugees today yeah. were projected onto them. But also Irish people were seen as this other, that they... So things that you often hear about, uh, say, for example, Muslims today would be things yeah. like that, they won't mix... That was said about Irish people right through the 19th century. They spoke their own language. They had this. Uh, they wanted to start a war in Britain, for example. In the 19th century, there was huge support in America for Irish independence. Yeah. Um, quite understandably, these were people who had been forced from this country. Um, they had emigrated to America during or after the famine. They didn't want to go. So but they were they talking had... about the Fenians trying to... Exactly. Yeah. Um, but they were seen, therefore, as this like, uh, violent group in society... And I was saying to you, there was this uh, very famous sketch done in the 1880s and appeared in a magazine in New York um, where you have the melting pot of American society and all the groups of American society are all in the melting pot together. But you've got the guy dressed in green standing at the edge with a knife. Yeah. And it's like the one that won't mix, the Irish. Yeah. So I think... And you also had two, is, uh, one narrative that said about uh, re- refugees and Islamic people that are living in Europe now the Americans talk about the no-go zones, yeah. that there's parts of Sweden and Belgium that you just don't go into. Yeah. And that was, in the 19th century, would have been the Five Points district yeah. in New York. And like, it's not just there, it's in every city. In, like, for example, Montreal in the late 19th century was known as the Belfast of uh, North America because of uh, the, there used to be quite commonly riots in, New, in Montreal between Irish Catholics and Protestants on the 12th of July. So... I guess, you know... When so there's your Sonny and Sheehan early. But, you know, there's a lot of parallels. Like I, I think there is a lot of parallels, and I think, like, as well, like, people... we Today you hear people talking about... I, I can't remember how many... Exa- exactly how many <coughs> Syrians have come to Europe since the war has started there. In Between 1846 and 1851, 1.25 million Irish people passed through the port of Liverpool... Liverpool was about, had a population of about 300,000 people. Mm-hmm. In New York in 1855, one in three people in New York had been born in Ireland. So if you walk down a street in New York, you're going to hear people speaking Irish. There's going to be any other group 
in New York are going to feel like outsiders to an extent. Yeah, and, and that's now, where the nativists, the American nativists uh, come from. Yeah, and I guess what I find strange today is that people complain about a very small number of people from Syria coming into the continent of Europe, yeah. whereas we're talking about hundreds of thousands of Irish people, and I don't think anyone in Ireland today would go, nah, you know what, they should have stayed here and died. You know, it's like, that's it, the, it the parallel. It the fucking mind. It, it, it's very baffling that we don't have that... I mean, Jesus Christ, the same people, lads, that will reply underneath the Daily Mail or the Journal and <laughs> give out about refugees are the same ones that will go on a fucking very long rant if you don't call the famine a genocide. Do you know what I mean? Um, it's nuts. Um, who are your top three favourite historians? Top three favourite historians? Uh, I would say... I guess to start with the easy one, I think Dean Furter is a great historian. Um, uh, I think the, the uh, stuff that he's written is great. I think uh, Brian Hanley, uh, I don't know if people know him, he's a great historian who writes, uh, uh, gives a great uh, uh, perspectives on early 20th century history. And then um, maybe someone like uh, Miriam Calliff, she does great uh, research into the role of women in the uh, War of Independence and the Civil War. I think she's doing um, interesting research at the moment on sexual violence in the uh, War of Independence and the Civil War, again, kind of something that maybe, I think... Yeah, that's something I don't, I've never... You know, even, yeah, I've never heard it's, of no, it's, it's kind of those same things again, like if we talk about cannibalism or we talk about um, prostitution or sex work during the famine, we don't... We like to think of our history as like this very simple... Like how much fear. of it is, is sold through a fucking narrative, you know? A post-independence narrative. I, and actually a lot of this that she was even started to form, particularly on the famine starts to form before independence. I mean, I think it was, a, like, I know O'Donovan Rasa, like, O'Donovan Rasa lived through the famine, but yeah. he definitely used the famine as part of how he would radicalise people, you know? Oh, for sure. Like, I think that's what we need to be clear about. The, the movement for independence obviously did what it needed to do. To, to, so it pointed out events like the famine. Mm-hmm. But... We, and like that happens all the time, but these people weren't historians, so yeah. we shouldn't just go oh because someone like John Mitchell say in particular like that man <laughs> there's a lot that he said that we wouldn't want to uh, uh, follow given he went on to back the Confederacy in the in the U.S. Civil War. But people often refer to oh well John Mitchell said it was this or that or yeah. well, Donovan Rossa said it. It's going well what was a Donovan Rossa trying to do? These people like he were, was the first man to have a, a mainland bombing campaign in Britain. Like I mean he was yeah. a lunatic. <laughs> but he, he was he, and he used to wear a cowboy hat. <laughs> But I, I, I think what we should we, we, we should do is going. What were they doing? Like they're not historians. They weren't. And I would imagine they themselves would freely accept that they were going to tell a story that would benefit the movement for Irish independence. And we all do it today. Like everyone forms narratives. Again, it's it's uh, to bring it back to the comparison with the the Islamic refugees. It's like. Yeah. The extremists are the ones who are getting a certain narrative to sell a certain view to radicalize to start a fucking war and that's what O'Donovan Rasa was doing is that too much of a hot take for you Finn? yeah it is I, I wanna, right, okay. I, I've got a soft spot for O'Donovan Rasa okay. I fucking knew there was something going on there I have a soft spot for O'Donovan Rasa Jesus I have a poster in the, in the bedroom at home have you? I was a cool bastard but he was mad like, I guess what I'm saying is I, I don't think you can compare these people uh, to the far right in oh I get what you're saying I just wouldn't draw that analogy but I do think that, like, you can't... 
say his, historians today, their job is not, and actually an interesting example of this, a historian's job is not to be influenced by what people will do with their information. Yeah. So, for example, up until 1997, there was no histories written about the famine. So there was a famous history written in 1874 by a priest. Yeah. There wasn't another general history. Now, there was, I'm not saying there wasn't research done, but there wasn't a general history written by an Irish person after that until 1988. And what was the... Is, would you the, rate Tim Pat Coogan, or is he someone you would... No. No? <laughs> Move on. I know. No, it's a... Uh, Tim Pat Coogan's a journalist, I guess. Fair enough. Okay. Um, and his book on the famine... Like, that, a, that to me seemed like something to be made for Irish Americans to give them that weeping story that they needed. To yeah, I, I think I, I think the problem with like Tim Pat Coogan makes claims and that and doesn't reference them. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're making a claim that's been made in 15 books previously, maybe you don't need to reference it. But if you're going to go out there, yeah, you have to uh, uh, you have to back that up. And I think like, but it went the other way too. Like, so there was no histories being written about the famine. And then uh, there was economic research being done and there was papers being written. And an uh, English woman actually called Cecil Woodham Smith wrote a book called The Great Hunger in 1962 and it was laughed away by Irish historians. There's problems with it, but basically she levelled a lot of blame at the British government. And it was only in 1997 that a huge amount of research happened. Now, in 1997, other things are happening in Ireland, like the peace process. And historians since then have admitted that basically they didn't want to talk about uh, they didn't want to rustle any feathers when the, yeah. the bombs might stop upstairs. Christine Keneally, for example, was accused of writing narratives that supported terrorism. Okay. And I guess what I'm saying is historians should not care about what. No. If someone is going to take your information and use it for one reason or another, that's not my problem. And it, it's not, I can't be influenced by uh, what pe- people being offended today will think about it. And in the same way, so for example, no one talked about the famine during the Troubles because or not no one, but a lot of people didn't because, or they wrote these histories that were kind of considered to be, um, they wouldn't make any comment on the role of the British government, yeah. or they'd, they'd shy away from it. And it's like, well, look, it's bloody obvious. Like, like what, I, what, I, what I found is um, when we made that documentary, made a documentary about, can you wish people up at the bar? A little bit, so. Dave's out with the Oaks. <laughs> but when I was making, I made a documentary about 1916, right? And uh, I found it difficult to find other, document- other documentaries or information out there about 1916, right? Especially around the 50th anniversary of 1916. Mm. And it wasn't really celebrated because the troubles were kicking off. The, um, like, I mean, th- that, that's the, uh, the female historian you mentioned there who's studying sexual violence in Mayor the... Pollock, yeah. Is it the War of Independence and the Civil War? Yeah, I, I, I couldn't be... I, I think so, yeah. Like she's done a, she, that's her general like, area. So you know, her, that yeah. will become sensitive now because of 1920... Or, or 2022 is coming up, you know? Yeah, yeah. Like, I think like, it'll be interesting the way Ireland try, <coughs> tries to deal with... Like, it's very but easy to people won't want to hear that. People won't yeah. want to hear that the Brits are cons and no one did nothing wrong on our side. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
And some of the worst atrocities happened in Kerry in the, the Civil, Civil War. War. There like, was nasty things thrown really, grenades into people's mouths yeah, and things, yeah. Like really horrific stuff done. Like in, there's two terrible ma- massacres uh, down in Kerry. Like there's particularly uh, horrific fighting that goes on in Kerry. In the grand scheme of things, I was actually talking to a friend of mine, it's just a funny anecdote, where he's bringing a, 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 he's some Russian friends and he, he brought them to Arbor Hill uh, where the 1916 leaders are buried and he was yeah. trying to explain the rising and you know, telling them you know, maybe a couple of hundred people were killed and the Russian was just going, you, you have heard of Stalingrad, like, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But um, the... Uh, There's a lot of stuff, like, I mean, another thing too that I don't hear a lot of, and my own fucking grandfather was accused of it, but the wiping out of Protestants in West Cork after the War of Independence. Yeah, like, uh, a lot of them fucked off down to South Africa to carry on what they were doing to some new people. <laughs> and, but others were fucking shot in their beds and disappeared. Certain fa- family, Protestant families that um, colluded with the Brits during the, the Troubles uh, or the War of Independence, you know? I mean, like, I'm lucky enough to have... My, my granddad, my granduncle, they were all in Tom Barry's fine column, you know? Okay. I have all his memoirs to read and mm. all the shit that they used to get up to. And used to just spend a lot of their time sleeping in Protestants' houses because the tans wouldn't fucking search them, you know? I think the, the history that was... a lot the, that, that came out, I don't know how long it is now, this idea that there was kind of this ethnic cleansing almost that happened in West Cork, but a lot of that has been disproven since then that in that, say, for example, people were being targeted maybe because they were um, providing information... That the, was the main reason, yeah. That's, but that's not a sectarian issue. There was Catholics also being killed for that reason too. Like, you know. Oh, really? So, okay. like, it's now to say that sectarianism played absolutely no role in Ireland in the 1920s is just daft. It obviously yeah, of course, did. Yeah. But the question is: is was there this drive? Was there this move to drive Protestants from the country? Like, for example, Common the Gael, the party that takes power, is actually set up to provide a vehicle for basically a united ruling class moving forward. So the... Uh, what, what's that now? So Common the Gael, who are the pre, pre, forerunners of uh, Fine Gael, Yeah. They're set up, basically, in, in, uh, after the, not long after the treaty. But the idea They're behind, the ones that joined up with the blue, short, blue shirts to Eventually, yeah, yeah. yeah. But like, one of the big uh, reasons for that is to solidify essentially the Irish ruling class at this point and what, the deal what is defines done. that ruling because there's one I have a hot take about 1916 right mm. which is how 1916 was taught to us in schools is you're told it was teachers painters poets lawyers these are the ones who led it yeah. to me what that says is it writes out Connolly's uh, Irish citizen army first of all mm. It writes out the poor people of Dublin, the people who had no work because of the 1913 lockouts, who actually went out with their fucking guns. And when you establish a new Ireland, you tell people this was led by poets, painters, teachers. What that message says is violent revolution is only a good thing when the gun is in a responsible hand. Oh, but not, sure, yeah. not in the hands of that fucking... Your man there with no money working in the fucking bread factory. No, 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 he can't have a gun. Like this. Oh, the, the, the poet can if he wants to. First ten years, <laughs> the first ten Would years. You, is, is, do you think that's am okay. I on the ball to something there? Like, because like, if you look at the first ten years of Irish independence, and it doesn't stop when Fianna Fáil come to power, but there's there's this war against different groups in society, 
so I guess this is kind of adopting American political parlance or whatever, but like there's a war on the poor. Like, yeah. So, for example, people are shot on strikes. Um, Post-independence? Post-independence. Like, for example, you, you also have things like... Women have made huge advances in Ireland between, say, the late 19th century and 1921. But by 1920, I can't remember what year it is, you've got the Minister for Justice, Kevin O'Higgins, <coughs> talking about trying to get women off juries, that women mm-hmm. aren't really able to. So there's this... And Kevin O'Higgins, that he's actually shot in 1927... But he says that they have, um, they, they're the most conservative revolutionaries ever to bring forward a revolution. So it kind of is, I guess what I'm saying is, they are very clear about it. And because what made me speak about that is when you mentioned the common, what is it, common oil? Common oil, yeah. Common yeah. oil. Um, what was this ruling class they wanted? And, like, and is it evident today? Did, they, yeah. did it work? Yes. Like, like for example, like, uh, actually, Conor McCabe wrote a great book about this. Uh, he's a history. Is it the farmer class? It is in part. Like it's 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 lots. Of, like say for example, there's a in the town that I grew up in, Castle Comer, um, that used to be a mining town. There's mm-hmm. big mines there, and say for example, the landlords there were the Wandersford family. Now they've got a problem. Some land, like a lot of uh, landlords, do set up and move back to England, but obviously you can't move your mine back to England, so they're stuck here. So that. There needs to be a way for them. Now, a lot of them withdraw a bit from public life, you mm-hmm. know, because they don't want to be, you know, you, you want to be careful now. If you've been riding a high for like three, four hundred years, yeah. A, things are changing here, and, you know, you don't want to push it out too far. And, you know, a lot of big houses are burnt. Um, yeah. But they have to provide a vehicle for these people, too. And, like, that is part of the project that, like, Irish society is going to have to be reformed, you know, recon- re- reconfigured. And that, like, say, for example, pre-independence alignments don't necessarily make complete sense anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, like this is a very this is one aspect of what's going on in a very complex picture. Like. Yeah. Um, um, here's a very hot take question for you. When you speak about uh, we'll say the British policies that were used during the famine, right? That, yeah. that big experiment, these fucking workhouses, famine roads, ridiculous things that to a logical person go, that is fucking nuts, what are you at? Is the Irish government trying to do something similar with direct provision now? Direct provision is... Well, I don't even think it's an experiment, because an experiment... Like, it's nuts. It, it's it's bizarre. You, like it, it, the reason I say it, I don't even think it's an experiment, because what would be the outcome? Like, if you're doing an experiment, you think something might work. If yeah. you look at... When I look at direct provision today, I don't see what... The only outcome is to actually try and frighten other people not coming here. I think that's is the, yeah. When I speak to people who know people in the system or know people who work, the only ideology at play or purpose seems to be they know that the people in direct provision are sending mails back home saying, "Do not come yeah. here." Like if, I think maybe the best parallel to what's going on in direct provision, maybe over the last twenty years, we've started to come to terms with institutional abuse in this yeah. country finally. And we're all shocked, and we all, a lot of us ask why our parents or how our parents. I think the exact same thing. I and think then we're all living in a society where this is happening. And like, I'm not. In 20 you know, years' time, like, remember, like, I, I was. Do you know when the fucking Magdalene shit first broke on the late, late? Right? It would have been about 94, 95, and the whole country was just like, what? What? Are you fucking serious? Like, mad shit. And even, like, there was a Magdalene laundry in, in Limerick up until 96. 
Deadly Games who made Mousetrap. Mousetrap was being made in Magdalene Laundries in Ireland when we were fucking kids. They were farming that work out to women working in, in uh, as slaves in Ireland in, in these Magdalene Laundries. But wh when that came out, all of us went to our parents and said, what the fuck were you doing? What were you doing? There, were, there was Magdalene Laundries in the city. There was two of them in Limerick. Like, what was the crack? Were you sending your laundry there? And But some people were. Like, people were, yeah. were fucking getting their laundry washed. But it's like, they would say, we didn't really know what was happening. The walls were too high. We didn't really know. And we just accepted it as normal. In 20 years' time, there's going to be a fucking a late, late show. Al Porter presenting it, maybe. And, <laughs> but there is going to be a late, late show in 20 years' time, lads, I'm telling you. And... The Magdalene Laundry moment is going to happen and it'll be about direct provision and our children are going to be asking us those questions and we're going to say, I don't know, the walls were too high. Because that's the only fucking answer I have at the moment. It's like, I don't know a lot about direct provision. It's very difficult yeah. for me to find things out. I know something probably really bad is happening and one of the fr most frightening things I... The most frightening thing I've heard about direct provision is one little girl came out about a year ago and said, some of the men look at me creepy. That's all I need to know. Do you know what I'm saying? That is all we need to know about what might be happening in there right now. And it's sanitised enough for us as a people to be able to get on with our lives and not see it or not know what's going on. I think there's a reason it happens behind closed doors. Yeah. I think they know... I think most people in this country are decent people. And I think if we knew... If, we, if it was put in front of us... No one but I don't want that to happen in fucking 20 years. Like. The, pro like, I, the thing is, what, and just when we talk about what our parents knew, people did know what was going on. People chose to turn away. Like, an example, there's a, I can't remember her name, uh, the famous book written about uh, stuff with the children, I think, details this. But, like, there was, say, for example, people say, oh, we never knew about sexual abuse. You read, we're talking about Irish newspaper archives, you go through things like indecent assault of a child. You, I, I, people can say, oh, well, we didn't understand and we didn't talk about these things. I don't care what anyone says. Indecent assault of a child, you know what that is. And was um, that, did you find evidence of that in the papers, so, but, yeah? For example, there's a, there's a famous, now, this, this is a different thing, it wasn't. The level of knowledge of child abuse in this country is far higher, was far higher. In, the 19, in 1929, or 1930 31, there was a thing called the Carrigan Commission SAT to investigate juvenile prostitution at the time. What came out of it, uh, what came out of this, though, was very obvious that there was huge amounts of uh, abuse going on of children, and the government suppressed it. And it was suppressed. You can actually read it online now. But it was and was suppressed. this familial abuse? Was it? No, uh, no, no, no. Um, it was. It detailed lots. Of, uh, it, it, it didn't. But it did detail, detail certain familial abuse. It was. Um, but it detailed lots of different. It didn't. The big thing it didn't touch on was clerical abuse. Yeah, that um, was whitewashed. Um, because. Um, and like, very famously in the 40s, a very famous Irish priest who had set up this thing called Boys Town, there'd been a film made about mm -hmm. it where he'd set up this model school or model kind of institution for boys. He came to Ireland, he travelled around, saw the industrial schools and made these speeches saying, do not send your children to... Fucking And well, I guess what I'm saying is, it's not there all the time, but this idea that this happened completely away and that... Then in the 90s, someone comes out and says, oh my God, all this has gone on. It's like, you knew it was happening. You, and fair enough, people were powerless to stop it because of the power of the church and all the rest of it. But we have to be honest and honest to the people who went through it. 
People did know this was going on. Like another it's example, the old classic of for evil things to happen, it takes a, a good yeah. person to do nothing. For sure. And what I think is, is like one thing as a society that I think now we should be very cautious of is, like 2015 water protests. We were all quite political. We were all very angry because the economy was in fucking shit, uh, and this water the water charges was too much, and people actually went up to fucking Dublin and did some shit, right? But now things are starting to get okay. Now people are actually looking at putting a patio out the back garden. But seriously, little things like that. People are looking through Argos catalogs now. I went to fucking... I know it sounds nuts. Lads, I'll tell you this. Uh, when the recession fucking started, 2007, right? I was gigging in Australia in 2011, right? And this, so that would have been four years into the recession. So I went into a shopping centre in Australia and I was sitting down and something was different and I didn't know what the fuck it was. Something just felt weird or sounded different. And what it was, was it was the sound and sensation of people buying things. <laughs> because I'd been in Ireland four years where people were going to shopping centres, like I'd been, been in Stevens Green. When people don't have money, they walk around slower. You don't hear the swish of a fucking bag off a leg. You don't hear tills. I'm serious. And when I went to Australia, I noticed this activity of just capitalism and, and buying. And I think now, like Fine Gael, there's something really snaky about Fine Gael at the moment, right? Because they seem to be doing nice things. Do you know, with, with uh, Simon Harris and Vradiker supporting Repeal the Eighth, and like Vradiker had a status the other day where he listed out a bunch of shit he's supposed to be doing anyway, but he listed out... <laughs> some stuff and said just saying at the end you know um, why are they trying to be this nice and what are they doing in the fucking background do you get what I'm saying and we don't notice this shit when we're comfortably able to look through an Argos catalogue it's as simple as that Argos catalogues four years ago were simply something you looked through with an aspirational kind of sense now you will look through an, an Argos catalogue and go yeah I'll get the plasma TV it's as simple as that. It's something as small as that. That's what will stop you thinking about direct provision. It, it, we are a capitalist people. We live in a capitalist society. This Buying things feels fucking nice. It feels lovely. And it stops you thinking about injustices because they're not in our face. This is what will stop us thinking about homeless people and direct provision. So I think it's something for all of us just to be aware of. And you can still enjoy your plasma fucking screen TV. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, do you think the famine had a major effect on the outcome of the American Civil War, considering the amount, the influx of people that would have went there? Can I hedge this one and say it had a impact? Um, okay. <laughs> um, it definitely had an impact. Or I think there was probably no way the South would ever win that war. Uh, it's just down to. Uh, the industrialization of the northern economy eventually meant that they just grind them down. Yeah. Um, a hell of a lot of Irish people died fighting in it. There's yeah. a guy uh, worth mentioning, Damien Shields is doing amazing research into this and trying to draw attention to um, this fact that the amount of Irish people that fought in that war is up there with probably, like, I, I wouldn't know, I wouldn't say it's maybe the most, but certainly one of the top conflicts of the amount of Irish people fighting in it. Wow. 
And, and is it as simple as how gangs of New York portray it? Um, <laughs> where basically you get off the famine ship and it's here's a gun and three free meals a day. Um, go down and sort our shit out. Joe, you were know, talking earlier about like, how I was going to qualify things and I, I wouldn't just go, uh, I don't know actually, so I'm going to have to dodge okay. that one too. Um, but um, I think what is certainly a factor in this, and you see it not just in terms of the army, um, but in terms of, you're talking about desperate people and they're going to do what they yeah. have to. Like, yeah. A lot of Irish people arriving in America, like from, so they start to arrive in big numbers from 1847 onwards. And some of these people coming from Ireland are actually relatively well-to-do people. I mean, relatively. But they basically sell everything they have to get there. So when they arrive so there... So the ones that got to America were actually, they weren't the poorest of the poor. No. Like but they the were poor. when they arrived. Poorest of the poor, I, there's a, a good, I was just, I'm writing another podcast at the moment, maybe it's in it, the last one, I can't remember, um, but uh, it's about this woman turned up in Dublin in uh, 1847, and, uh, she went to this place called the Night Asylum on Bow Street, it was basically where homeless people in the city slept, it was just a, basically a room, there was nothing in it, and you could just go in there and sleep, and this woman went there and she turns up with six kids and they let her in, and they're very sympathetic to her plight because she looks really poor, Anyways, they hear money on her and they go, oh, if you have money, you have to leave it here and we'll give it back to you. And they're leaving and eventually they find out she's an absolute ton of money. Yeah. And they take her to court because obviously someone who's poor couldn't have the money, she must yeah. have stolen it. Turns out that she actually had a relatively sizable farm, it was like something like 15 acres. And they, her and her husband had been doing okay. The husband had died a couple of months earlier. She couldn't, had no money to buy seed for a new crop. So they'd sold everything. But basically, she had been quite wealthy, but to sell everything to get a passage to America... She Jesus sold everything. Christ. So that woman, she was let on eventually. That woman turns up in New York. You know, the chances are, well, the, the life expectancy is very low as well. Like so, they, but like um, they're absolutely impoverished and they live in absolutely horrific conditions in New York when they arrive there. Like for example, there's accounts of them living in uh, basements because obviously they're the cheapest. But uh, they'd be close to the uh, Hudson River or whatever, so they'd be tidal. So Fuck you'd it, have man. to leave the you'd have to leave the basement. Um, at a certain time when the tide came in because we drowned if you didn't. Jesus. Um, but, uh, yeah, like, if, if you think about it, poor people, if you can't afford to buy food in Ireland, you're not going to be able to afford to buy a ticket to... Like, tickets aren't cheap. Like, you get to Liverpool for five shillings, you get to Canada for 50, and you get to America I heard stories of um, <clears throat> some people paying the full price to get to America and then whoever's running the ship is a gaul and they just throw him off into Liverpool and tell him that's New York, deal with that. <laughs> yeah, Liverpool was pretty notorious because um, I was saying earlier, like, you know, you got 1.25 million Irish people passing through that place and, like, if it was Dublin today, you know, or any city, there's the always... taxi drivers would have something to say about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's also going to be people there on the tape, like, you know, and of you've course. got these people coming through and there's always the guy, like... There's a huge amount of... There's articles written about how much money actually came into the Liverpool economy by people ripping off Irish emigrants and people being told their ships... You know, because often what they'll do is they'll have bought... Like, they'll come to Liverpool, they'll be waiting a couple of weeks to get the passage on to North America and some of them don't make it. Like, they get stuck or they get stuck in... And they get stuck in England, they go to Manchester or places like that or maybe Glasgow or... Fuck. I'll wrap it up now, lads, because you need to go home. You need to go to work in the morning. <coughs> you need to get up early for Leo. <laughs> um, I'd like to thank my magnificent guest, Finn Dwyer, who I think was...
Finn was uh, you were so good tonight I, I hated the fact that I was presenting the podcast <laughs> I wanted to be out there just listening for points of it you know what I mean um, thank you very much to DJ Willie or DJ it's just, it's, He's 19 today, and uh, this has been the Blind by Podcast. You've been unbelievably sound, lovely people. Thank you to the, for the questions. Thank you for the crack. Have a good night. <laughs>